Okay, so we're still in the Grace Upon Grace series. You'll be happy to know that this is the final chapter, chapter 6. If you look in Roman numeral 2, you'll see the six chapter titles that were divided into two sections. And last week we did the first page of this outline. Uh, and so if you flip over, we're going to actually get right into the second page. And it's our thesis that... Um, Probably for somewhere around a thousand years, uh, the the idea of the church and the doctrine of the church has been gradually eroding away. Uh, what has replaced it in Western culture, especially in America, is what some people call radical individualism, uh, where the church is just something that we, uh, it's an afterthought that we fit into our lives, and if the church helps us with our other goals, uh, sometimes not even spiritual goals, although, you know, ideally people will say, well, if the church can help me with personal sanctification issues or or this or that, help me grow, uh, if I find the teaching stimulating in the worship excellent or something. Uh, so uh, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, it degenerates even into, you know, the church is there for business contacts or what other, other you know, to a better place to look for a mate than a bar, but uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, <laughs> what's that? That would offend on the church, Steve. Steve said, baby. And the bar, too, yeah, right. That's funny. All right. So, what we're basically doing in this, in this uh, thing is we're, again, we're saying that grace has a delivery system. Grace is fully realized in Jesus Christ. It's a relational term for those of you who haven't been here for all of these things, all the teachings. But like when you turn on the water in your faucet, grace is delivered to us uh, through a complex system. Uh, you know, there's some city harvested that water, cleaned it some, maybe halfway to minimum federal standards or something, and uh, <laughs> pumped it up to a tower and there's a network of pipes that go down below the streets and in through the basement of your house and a water meter, and it comes out on the third floor of your house or second floor, however tall your house is. And, and because your spigot is lower than that tower, and it's part of a system. Grace comes to us through three inextricably intertwined means, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the church. And we need all of these. And what's, what is constantly being undermined uh, is frankly all three of those. Uh, you know, there is a real demonic kingdom, and they do want to keep you away from Christ initially. And as Christ becomes your Lord and Savior, and you're converted to Christ, and you become a member of God's family, therefore automatically a member of his church, uh, in the, invisible, and, and God desires to have you member yourself in a, in a local church. As these things happen, uh, you will have this, your, your spiritual warfare, in a sense, will be to keep you away from these three things. Too busy for God's word. Uh, wrong paradigms and, and uh, assumptions about God's word. Many things try to undermine God's word. Uh, many things try to undermine the, the, uh, your understanding and beginning to not only believe in, but experience and move in the power of his Holy Spirit. God, if you're, if you have what, uh, you know, there's a idea that you always hear people say, well, I got all of the Holy Spirit when I was converted. Well, 
In a sense, theologically, that's correct because he's a person and you did receive the Holy Spirit when you were regenerated. But there's a release of the Holy Spirit that even Christ uh, had to go through when he went to, uh, as our model, when he went and presented himself to John, when the Spirit descended on him like a dove, when the Spirit led him into the wilderness for seasons of fasting and to be, and to be tested. And then he came out in the power of the Spirit. And frankly, there's no biblical reason to, there's, there's really no, if you take, you know, we're, we're so big on proof text and we could use proof texts like greater works than I do shall you do. But the whole of scripture basically says Christ is the model. The, the, the book of Acts is, is given to us as a secondary model. Uh, if it doesn't look like the book of Acts and like the ministry of Christ, then we then we're sub-biblical and we need to have, seek seek grace and we all and we all are there that's where we are right that's where we are as grace christian fellowship that's where we are as american christianity we are we need to pioneer back so what what uh we're going to just touch on now none of these are going to be developed uh in full i don't know if i'm going to spend one week two weeks three weeks on these 21 points but i'm going to look at 21 areas, which I really had to uh, hone down to get it down to that many, that need to be restored. And of course, my uh, I have a little saying, we must re-examine if we're going to rediscover, and we must rediscover if we're going to, re- to restore. What God wants is always the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God wants to incarnate his word in a people for his own possession. Exodus 19.5, if you will indeed obey my voice, then you will be to me a special people, my treasure in the earth. God has always wanted a people that would show forth his glory, that would be able to hold his glory in their corporate midst, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would actually uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would be pleased to be manifest in our, in our presence, in our midst, and so forth. So uh, let's get into uh, these 21 areas that are not necessarily in any particular uh, order of importance, frankly. I kind of crunch some of the most important ones toward the middle of the list, sort of a uphill and then back down crescendo kind of thing, I guess. But the first is the, uh, the, the idea of the Lord's day. Now, the book of Revelation, contrary to modern thinking, is not some deep mystery. It, it is apocalyptic writing, but it was meant to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was clearly understood by the hearers of the first century. Uh, there's all sorts of paradigm reasons why we don't understand it today, but it's not as complicated as people think, and it's not about what most people think. But uh, that's beside our point for today. The, my point is this. When John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, at the beginning of his letter to the seven churches of Asia, which is what Revelation was. It was an epistle to seven churches. When he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, everyone in the audience knew what that meant. Because the Christians from the time of Christ's resurrection gathered together early on the first day of the week, which they called the Lord's day. The Romans called it Sunday, the day of the sun. And I don't care that we have to not use the pagan word for it or some, some crusade like that. But it's, I really wish I would, we would call it the Lord's Day. You know, when I'm talking to customers in our business, I 
tell them we don't answer the phone on the Lord's Day. <laughs> and uh, they always usually know what that means. The, the idea that um, getting together with a body of believers that you, that you are in covenant with, that you, are build, that you are becoming fishers of men together, that you are missional together, that you are discipling one another, that you exist to worship and glorify God, that you become a house of prayer. Uh, all of these things uh, is not optional. And uh, the minimum start of it in the New Testament world was the Lord's Day. All the appearances of Christ after the resurrection are on the first day of the week. He rose on the first day of the week. And the early Christians from the earliest time, you can go through the writings of Ignatius, uh, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, or whatever, but they talked about how they gathered together on the day of the Lord, the first day of the week, because God rested on the seventh day in the original creation, and on the eighth day, which is the first day, he began a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that came in Christ. And the first day of the week is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth and, and the new creation, of which if you are born again, you are part of that new creation. And, it, and that new creation is coming and coming and coming. It's not just going to come at some cataclysmic event at the end of time, but it's like leaven working its way through the whole dough. You know, the first Easter, I'm fond of saying, it was uh, approximately 120 or so followers of Christ, most of whom were scattered, some of whom had enough courage to hide out in an upper room in Jerusalem. Great start, right? <laughs> Uh, by, this, by the second Easter, there were somewhere between four, four or 5,000. Uh, and uh, if, if, if the book of Acts is just counting the men as is done in the Gospels, then there could be, have been as many as ten to 20,000 believers just one year later. And uh, for, for the first time, just about 10 years ago, at least those who nominally in name call themselves Christians are now the number one religion in the world, uh, passing, having passed Islam uh, for adherence. And, uh, uh, you know, Christianity continues to grow. Sometimes because we live in Western culture, which has, has seen Christianity declining since the Enlightenment for about four centuries now, uh, we, we kind of miss the point that God is, it, Christianity is not declining worldwide. Uh, it's, you know, we're part of a small alliance of church called the Alliance for Renewal Churches, and we have more than 10 times as many churches in Brazil as we have in the United States. Uh, and, you know, you better expect if you visit one of those churches that the worship's going to last at least three hours. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't speak for an hour or two, you're going to be asked to come back up and continue to share at the end of your message, you know. So uh, Christianity isn't necessarily, you know, necessarily uh, falling apart. Estimates are that as many as 30,000 people a day come to the Lord in, in the People's Republic of China, mainland China. Um, of course, it's hard to get statistics on that since uh, it's not necessarily uh, the government cooperating with it or anything like that. Uh, you know, Africa has gone from 3 million Christians in 1900 
to over 300 million Christians at, at the year 2000, and uh, probably somewhere around 315 to 320 million Christians today. Now, yes, there's the problem of nominalism, there's the problem of religious confusion or so forth, there's many things. All of that is just to say, um, the first day is the Lord's day, and the new heavens and the new earth are coming, and they're coming, and they're coming. And it's going to be like a grain of mustard, which when it's mature, its branches will fill the whole earth. The, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, there's a, a principle that runs throughout Scripture that will help you with hermeneutics, that is how to interpret Scripture, called the one in the many. God is one God, yet he comes to us in three persons. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of the ch great chapters on the principle of the one in the many that runs through all of creation. And that is that uh, God is, uh, you know, the, the body of Christ is one body, yet it has many members, right? That principle, one in many, runs in a family. Uh, the husband and wife are one, yet they're two. <laughs> uh, yet, and, and the fam when they start having children, the family is one, yet it might be four or five or seven or 12 or 14, depending on how blessed you are. Um, so... The Christians met together on the first day of the week. All the Christians in a city came together, and it was what you might call large group. However, they also met, point two, from house to house. Now, this is not just something that was experienced in, in the book of Acts uh, chapter 2 or something, but this was the pattern for several centuries. They met from house to house, taking their meals together with sincerity of heart, praising God, and so forth. Small groups. They didn't necessarily always have a small group program. Frankly, they had a level of community which caused them to live small groups. You know, they were over one another's homes. You know, your house as a Christian, one of the, one of the qualifications for leadership is hospitality. Is your house open to strangers? And do you, Jesus said, don't just invite those who can reciprocate. Do you invite the, the poor, the blind, the wretched, the naked? Do you invite the homeless? Do you invite people who are socially awkward over to dinner? Do you invite people who could never have you over to dinner? Do you invite people over to dinner that uh, most churches would ignore? Etc. And you know, and what do we do when we get together? Do we just watch movies? Do we do we talk about the things of the Lord? Do we worship together? Do we pray together? Uh, do we make covenant together, breaking bread and having meals together, and so forth? Now, I do want to mention with this that um, if you don't, if you haven't ever been taught this, this is something you really do need to have in your understanding of Scripture that the Jerusalem Church is not the model church in the New Testament. The Antioch church is the model church in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch. We're going to touch on their model several times in these 21 points. And what way that's important is because, again, we have, we have made uh, the, the Mount Olivet discount discourse of Matthew 24 and 25, we have made that something about the end times, but the early Christians understood it was about the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to happen in less than a generation. There is no other church in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit led the people to sell their properties and to lay them the, um, the proceeds at the apostles' feet 
and they lived in a communalism or communism style. They didn't just live community in Jerusalem, they lived communalism. They didn't have separate households where they did, of course, serve and help one another, but each household was responsible for its own finances and its own business and so forth, as, the, as all the other New Testament churches did. And many times people will mistakenly say, oh, if we could just back, get back to that communal living. That was never God's intention. The Puritans tried that in their first year. If you read uh, Bradford's Plymouth Plantation, he said, we tried living uh with one one shared purse and so forth, and it led to everyone starving because no one was willing to work the fields and so forth because they had no personal interest in it. He said, we tried this communistic experiment as if we were wiser than God. <laughs> in, a, in other words, it was well understood throughout the centuries uh, that communalism was not necessarily the pattern or the model, and that's why you see Paul taking up a collection through later in the New Testament for the relief of the poor in, the, in Jerusalem because communism always leads to poverty. But that was led by the Spirit. We know that, that uh, in 67 AD, all of the Christians left Jerusalem and scattered them. When Peter is writing his letter, uh, he says to the, to the Christians that are scattered about, and he lists all these places in Asia Minor, because most of, the, most of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem had begun to move themselves out of Jerusalem because they understood that Jesus said that Jerusalem was going to be surrounded by an army, which happened literally from 67 to 70 AD, and not one stone would be left on another, and no group of people in the history of the world has ever seen such a horrible tribulation as what the Jews went through that three and a half years. No other people have ever suffered or been tortured as, as much. It was it was beyond what happened in World War II. It was it was great suffering. Anyway, all that's just to say it might help you if you understand as you read your New Testament epistles that they are written by people uh, who understand that Antioch is the model, not Jerusalem. Thirdly, I'll just, I'm, you know, I'm just touching on these points, but that, so you, the first two points, I, you know, to make sure you have the right takeaway is that the Christians, all the Christians in a city met together in lar large group on the Lord's day. That gets done sometimes in some cities on, on, on Easter Sunday, and it, and it can be a wonderful thing. I, you know, we, we have relationships with quite a few pastors. I especially have relationships with inner city pastors, um, and, uh, because we've chosen to, to focus on the hurting and the needy and so forth. But um, we, uh, we, you know, we are a long way from Christian unity, which of course uh, only God can bring about, but we, if that needs to be the cry of our heart. I, I don't wanna go there just yet. Uh, we'll be talking about Christian unity as we, as we go through this, but um, ever since the first great divide of the church between the East and the West in, in 1054 AD, and then the second great divide of the church in the Reformation, uh, the church has had less and less impact on culture because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I, I hope, I, I hope, uh, you know, the, my, my prayer to God is that I will get to write a book before I die that are just thoughts on like how we might bridge the gaps uh, and, and attain Christian unity someday. But I certainly give a lot of prayer and thought to that. Um, 
that Jesus prayed that we would be one. And I don't think God the Father doesn't listen to God the Son's prayers. And I don't think God the Son prayed any prayers that weren't led by the Holy Spirit to be exactly what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wanted to see prayed. I prayed to God that someday the church will be one. If you think we have great impact on our culture today, you're not really understanding our culture. And our number one reason that we have little impact is our tremendous disunity. God help us. Uh, thirdly, the gospel, the kingdom versus the modern gospel. Um, I was reading a book this morning called The Puritans on Conversion. Quite a different approach to uh, subjects like sin and repentance and uh, conversion and the lordship of Christ and the sovereignty of God and so forth and what we have in modern times. And um, um, if you if you uh, want to, you could ask Jordan. Well, there's a there's a sign up thing for past CDs. Some of them are we're gradually, you know, we our church. Bear with us. We work with all volunteers. There's no full time people in our in our church. But uh, gradually, Jordan and Emily and John have been working on a project to get more and more of the sermons as podcasts on our website, and, qu and quite a few are up there, but uh, I don't think any of the ones from the Gospel of the Kingdom series we did at Wright State this past year are up there, and you can ask Jordan for those. But um, the Gospel of the Kingdom of God, the Gospel preached, the apostolic Gospel of the first century is quite different from what's preached today, and that's something you, that we need to study and recover. Uh, John got, you can also refer to John's series that he did on the book of Acts that he just finished uh, two weeks ago, uh, where he got after four, four of the missing elements from, uh, from the apostolic gospel, a warning of judgment, and he didn't emphasize this as much, but I'm throwing this in, is, is when, um, there's a book by um, um, William Wilberforce called Real Christianity, and what he gets after is that the the whenever Christianity is not having much salt and light, you know, in his in the days of William Wilberforce, Christianity didn't have enough impact to overcome with the horrific practice of chattel slavery. In our day, we haven't been able to have impact on many important issues of social justice, including that. Uh, in the white community, we are killing one out of three babies by abortion. In the black community, we kill two out of three babies by abortion uh, because, of course, the abortionists target the Latin Americans and the African Americans more heavily. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, obviously, uh, the church is having very little impact. One of the reasons for that is we have very little doctrine of sin. Most of us see Jesus as a little somebody we need a little help from. But we don't see ourselves as having been dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, we don't see ourselves as utterly helpless, and we don't see the, the horrendousness, horrendousness of our sin. Partly because we focus on outward things like drunkenness or smoking or what have you, drug addiction or... Adultery, all of which are, you know, well, at least some of those are, are in a sense. Uh, you know, we, 
but you know we don't you don't we don't think much about pride uh how many sermons have you heard about selfish ambition self-righteousness you know etc greed lust perversion of all kinds we are utterly sinful people that needed a rescuer we had no ability we didn't even have ability to know we needed rescued until he sent the Holy Spirit through the church, through some Christian, through some Christian publication, some literature that you were some way, God used these three tools of grace to begin to help you see that you were in the middle of a house that was on fire and burning down and you had no way of escape except to cry out for his mercy. So that's just one of the issues, uh, repentance, which is a daily thing. The exclusivity, uh, the, you know, it, you know, even even lots of Christians think that this is just well, this is just a possible alternative. Uh, and the warning of judgment, of course. But one of the main points that John emphasized was a historically informed gospel. We they never had four spiritual laws or five, you know, they never they never. Divorced, it's, it's kind of like uh, saying that the Titanic hit a little piece of ice. You know, an iceberg, about 10% of it shows above the water. And the truth of the matter is when you reduce the gospel to, you know, a few principles like that, you're missing the context, which is why the church has gone out the window. For most people, church is an afterthought, not a way of life, not a community of believers serving one another. Uh, not not an absolute necessity to you know what is important as, as much as you can come to know God uh, through his word and by his spirit you will only come to know Jesus through Sydney and Edwin and Larry God has a people that he wants you to to be a, a family with and there's there's a measure of Jesus revelation of himself in that community of believers that you can't get any other way if you say, Lord, I want to know you, I want to be intimate, I want to love you, well, who do you want to be intimate with and love with and fight with and wrestle with and so forth? First John, he says, how can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? There's a mystery of Christ in Emily. And... Uh, that's great. So that's what you miss when you don't have an historically informed gospel because you don't understand that from the beginning, God always wanted a people for his own possession. And the whole book of Matthew, as we covered last week on the first, on part A of chapter six in this series, was the whole thing of the, the book of Matthew is God's covenant lawsuit against Israel saying the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit with, you know, and your house is being left to you desolate and all that kind of stuff. And the army, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church. It, it's not, you know, we say, uh, I, I'm going to our church or my church. I actually wish we would try to not say that. You know, the church belongs to the Lord. Everything about it belongs to the Lord. It's his church. Well, anyway, the point is 
I think you see that better when you stay within a what the apostles always did. If you look at all the sermons in the book of Acts, they always have a lot about the history of what God has done leading up to the fulfillment of everything in Christ and in Christ creating a new people called the church. Number four, a discipleship model versus a decision model. We have progressively since the Civil War degenerated into a sinner's prayer decision model. How many decisions were made for Christ? I remember uh, a young man who was, uh, oh, he was a youth minister and so forth, and they had done this outreach to a high school, and a secular high school, and which is all very good and so forth. But he, you know, came back and gave a report, and it, and he said. There were 22 decisions for Christ. And you could almost see, like, I pictured, like, a, one of those Western movies where he swirled his guns afterwards, went, and put them back. You know, 20, we shot 22 down. Praise be to, I don't know if he, where he was putting the praise. But uh, uh, perhaps not where it needed to be. Of course, he was under a little pressure from his, uh, from his uh, particular church uh, about uh, the lack of fruitfulness in his ministry and so forth. And, uh I was an, an observer asked to, uh, to look on for some reasons. But it was interesting, of that 22 people, three of them attended the church that sponsored the event one Sunday night. None of them ever came back again. Uh, there are many statistics. You can look at studies done by Campus Crusade for Christ, by the Barna Institute, by the Nazarene Church, by the, et cetera. But we have degenerated to about uh, somewhere between 3 and 5% of decisions for Christ ever go on to show any measurable signs that new life began. You know, when a baby is born in the natural, you can tell if it's alive or not. Ask any, uh, and, you know, Davion sitting back there, and uh, Taylor's probably in the very back. Ask them how many times they change diapers. <laughs> that's a really that's a sign of life. <laughs> if you if you if we want to have church growth, you better expect we're going to be changing a lot of diapers. Uh, you you got to feed, you got to water, you got to hug and nurture and and bond and and uh, firm and all that, and you got to clean up some messes. You know. I still have this nightmare about uh, one of our kids was so sick with the flu one time and we didn't know it. They were just about to get sick and uh, they threw up SpaghettiOs <laughs> Sit, sitting on the couch. <laughs> and no, no attempt to get the. Of course, there were two or something or three, but, you know, it's like three feet out covered the whole couch. <laughs> and it's like if you're going to have kids, you're going to have messes, you know. So let's get out there and evangelize and be a missional church. <laughs> and, uh, and especially especially be hospitable to the hurting, the needy, uh, the people that other people would ignore. All right. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you're all familiar with these verses. You know, Jesus says, all authority, not, you know, and I always like to say the, the word all means all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make 
disciples of all nations. Well, what does that mean? He goes on to tell you, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we have four gospels to give us a model of what Jesus did, how he discipled. And if it doesn't look like that, then we need to repent, we need to restore, we need to re-examine, we need to recover, and we need, it. If you know, it, it, there's so much posturing in Christianity. Let's just admit it. Grace Christian Fellowship is not a pretty good church. <laughs> We're just, need. we need God. We're a church that really needs the, the Lord. We need the manifest presence of God in our worship. We need prayer meetings. We need repentance. We need Bible study. We need seeking. Uh, we thank God for all that he's done. If we look back, that's one perspective. But let's look forward to the model of Christ himself in the apostolic church. And until we're there, let us humble ourselves before God and say, well, we're just a little group of pilgrims trying to find him. The discipleship thing is huge because decisions biblically actually mean nothing. You know, I we have a teaching called Five Vital Signs of Life. But if there's uh, no hunger for God's word, Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of God's word. One of the hardest fights we've had the last 10 years is getting even people who... Uh, are what our culture would call really mature Christians and so forth to get a relationship with God's word. I, I don't think Ben Vey would mind me sharing this. I'm going to share about a friend of mine named Ben Vey. He was the children's pastor at uh, Bethel Christian Assembly. We were there for three and a half years. I had an office there. I taught a Sunday school class and so forth. And Ben was sitting in my Sunday school class one morning. Uh, because his job was to supervise the Sunday school classes, which include kind of drop-in visits to listen. And I was doing a 26-part series called Search the Scriptures, which is on how to get started in a more serious approach to, to God's Word. And uh, we, we did that Bible study at Wright State last year uh, as well. But, uh, you know, he came to me and he said, you know what, can we meet in private? And I said, sure. And he said, what? I said, what time? He goes, how about 6 a.m. Monday morning? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> okay, Lord. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't even know if God got up that early. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was choosing to be deceived in that area. But uh, <laughs> So we met at 6 o'clock Monday, and he, just, he said, you know what? I read the Bible in... Um, in Bible college. And since then, the Lord's been dealing with me to have a relationship with the scriptures, and I've just never done it. He said, well, you designed for me a Bible study program. And we did, and he's, we still talk about once a year or so on the phone. He's in Michigan now. But uh, and he lead, he's a tremendous pastor and a tremendous brother, just such a pure heart and wonderful guy. Every, some of you know him. Uh, he spoke here at our church one time uh, years ago. And, uh, you know, that revolutionized his life. Do you know they, uh, the statistics are around 85 or 90% of pastors only read the Bible to get sermons for sermon prep. We're in a crisis in Christianity today about the lack of Bible knowledge. And that's just one thing that should be, if that's a sign of the new birth. 
I didn't, I always say this, no one had to teach Carla how to nurse, right? I, I still remember that as a, as a father, uh, not very involved, just trying to be supportive, <laughs> but uh, uh, a lot of pain going on. But, uh, you know, I don't know if, I think it was around 20 minutes after Carla was born, they, by this time they had her cleaned up and a little blankie and all these things and brought her to Catherine and she just starts nursing. Now, I know there's babies that have trouble and, and women that have trouble or whatever. But, you know, she hadn't even heard my seven-part series on how to nurse or anything, you know. <laughs> and uh, in the three-part uh, appendix on why you should be hungry. <laughs> and, you know, it just amazes me that we have to beg, plead, conjole, cry out, please have a relationship with God's word. I think that actually says something about the realities and levels of our of what kind of life is here. You know, I got up uh, this morning at, uh, I guess about seven, something like that. And I had my usual two hard boiled eggs and then I normally have a banana for later for breakfast, but I didn't have any, so I ate half a muffin. And I had real trouble not eating the whole muffin. <laughs> but it's over 400 calories and loaded with sugar, so I didn't. But, uh, I, but I'm supposed to eat half, but I really ate like three quarters of it. But <laughs> Because what, you know what, we're hungry, <laughs> right? Eating is fun. Like, I, I just don't get it how you could not enjoy, how you could not enjoy sitting at God's feet like Mary, listening to his word enough to push all the other crap out of your life. Turn off the text. Turn off the cell phone. Uh, close your inbox from, you know, from Gmail. Uh, I do have the computer open because I use that to read. But, you know, seriously, hide and find it, get a bat cave or whatever. You know, that's a modern translation to Jesus said, go into your inner room. Build an inner room just for that purpose. That's probably the greatest feature I like of my house is I discovered this unused space and I built a study in there. And I, I would just encourage you that uh, this, and that's just the first part of discipleship. Discipleship, Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 34, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, you will truly be my disciples. And, if you, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, if that's not a promise enough to get you motivated to the word abide is the Greek word meno. It means to dwell in, live in, stay in constantly. You know, the psalmist said seven times a day do I, and I, I didn't mean to go off on studying God's word. It seems like, it seems like we can't get away from that subject, but the, the thing of fellowship. You know, we know we've passed out of life and into, you know, I, my parents became Christians before I did. And they were talking in tongues, and they, I'd come home all, you know, high as a kite and, and you know, on various kinds of drugs or whatever. And, and uh, they'd be, like, in the living room having a prayer meeting and lift, praying for Jesus, you know, to Jesus. And, and they would be casting demons out of people. And my brother and I got the, the parents would become Jesus freaks, and they're talking in tongues and stuff. It's re oh, my God. And I'd go up and... Listen to, you know, an album called Demons and Wizards, which I thought was my favorite album. And, you know, and I hated their friends. I just hated them. Couldn't, couldn't you just leave me alone? My, uh, uh, 
And, you know, they would always say, we're praying for you. And I'm like, please don't. <laughs> Who gave you permission? You know. <laughs> but then, then I became a Christian, and I would ask them questions about the Bible. What did Jesus mean when he said this and this? And, you know, literally, sometimes they had to say, Greg, it's 2 in the morning, and I have a job. And I've got to go to, I got to go to the work the next day. And I'm so glad you're excited about the Lord, but I really got to go home and go to bed. You know, because we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Who do you love? You know what? My old friends didn't want to hang around me much. That's just some things about what it means to begin to be a disciple of Christ, really. You know, the, the Ethiopian eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? What he's saying is, I want everything that's, you're to, the, if, if I'm going to take Jesus, I want the whole package. Give me the water baptism, the baptism in the spirit. Give me communion, Bible study, uh, all the warts of God's people. I, I want the whole package. You, you know, you know you have a problem, and I can remember going like, I, you know, because I took about a six-month period to be converted, and one of my big questions was, do I have to give up smoking marijuana if I'm going to be with Jesus? I, I'm ashamed to say that, but I was that lost. That's uh, how disgusting. But, you know, when, when God really gets a hold of you, it's like, you know, okay, Lord, I'll sign, fill in the contents later. <laughs> that's that's really what how you need to come to the Lord. Lord, anything you want. And, you know, as I go, I'll try to discover more about what the contract really says. <laughs> all right, let's move on. Point five, uh, I guess that's all the further I'll get today. Uh, I'm going to jump down to covenantal community and come back to five because I really feel like God put this on my heart a lot the, this past week. You know, we are moving toward, we have always said that Grace Christian Fellowship is a covenant community, okay? And uh, we are going to be having our elders meeting today is, is really about how we can uh, develop a series of teachings that that anyone who comes you know, we're starting to grow. We were stuck at 20 people for the longest time. And uh, now, you know, for the, at least at 1030, we usually have a little over 30. And uh, there's a, uh, we're praying for some people to get baptized in the spirit this afternoon and so forth. So God is starting to give us favor. And we've, it's been a long, hard process. Uh, we learned a lot of lessons about how, you know, because uh, every other church that my wife and I had started had grown rather quickly. And and so forth, but we decided to start this inner city thing and 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 uh, reach out to people who are hurting and troubled. And it, it just took a lot longer to get rolling than I, and we're still not even to where we're at a financial break even point or any of that kind of stuff. But we're, you know, but there's, there's some real life going on here. There's great relationships. Uh, if you don't know, there's uh, four people who meet here from eight to noon every day. Uh, John Gray, Caleb Trumbach, uh, Sam Awante, and Beth Chamberlain, who will be here this this afternoon to get baptized in the Spirit. And uh, they study the Bible for four hours, and they usually take a time to worship and pray. And I know there's four or five or six of you who join them at times. John Gray's in charge of that group, so don't bother me about it, because uh, I'll be in bed, I hope. But, uh, <laughs> but you, know, uh, you know, call John the night before and say, hey, I'd like to pray, because they can move the prayer time 
And we've had, you know, four or five, six, seven people pray. As you know, there's a prayer uh, meeting on Friday nights that's worship first, then prayer. You know, the Bible said, my house shall be a house of prayer. I'm all for the, uh, the IHOP movement and the DAYHOP movement. But let me just tell you this. Here's what happens. Every parachurch movement that God raises up, the reason there's Campus Crusade for Christ and, and Navigators and things like that is because every church should be targeting the university campus as the primary place of evangelism and discipleship. Those are the future leaders of the world. There could be no more strategic place. When Promise Keepers came out of nowhere and grew to millions of people and, and packing out stadiums of 100,000, it's because men weren't hearing in their churches uh, be faithful to the covenant you made in your marriage. Pay your tithes on time. Pay all your bills on time. Be one of the best workers on your job. Be the best worker you can be. Try to be the best worker there. Sometimes you, you know, I, I worked for a company where I was the number two salesman year after year. Number one guy was a Christian guy, but he was just too gifted. I couldn't even get close to as good as he was. But I, you know, I gave my best effort. You know, they weren't hearing that word and so God raises up. The reason IHOP and DAYHOP exist is because the church is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And the model of daily prayer should be going on. You know what? Uh, the 24-7 prayer thing, they didn't invent that. The Moravians used to do that. They, the, the Moravian, uh, if you don't ever Google Moravians and study their movement sometime, for they had a prayer, they had a nonstop prayer and praise meeting 24-7 for 100 years. I think I hops at about 15 years or something like that right now, right? 85 years to go. But we should be doing this in our local churches. Now, we don't have enough people in this church to do 24-7, but we have enough people to do every day. So, uh, let's... Last, last boy, I got five minutes to do this. Covenantal community, membership covenants, tithing, community, not communalism. I already talked about community, not communalism, thankfully, so we won't need that. Um, we're, you know, we're going to be doing a series of teachings probably this fall or this winter that we'll record. I'm hoping we can even video record them that we'll have a regular class that I'm hoping will be some, only about six weeks for anyone interested in joining our church. And... Uh, You know, we want to have a culture as a church. Uh, and the culture is the lordship of Jesus Christ. We exist to bring glory to him and to, to, to carry ourselves in such a way that he would be pleased to manifest his presence in our homes, in our children, in our worship, in our prayer, in, in our way of life. So uh, with that, one of the things that, that I just want to talk about um, is the, the area of tithing. And I want to read this for a minute. It says, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You're cursed with a curse. You know, people try to skirt around this. This is very plain here. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, if you really study the doctrines of what the storehouse was in the Old Testament and what the church has become in the New Testament, your local church is the storehouse. It fulfills all the functions that the Levitical priesthood did, the priesthood of all believers in your local church. 
uh, we're a house of prayer for the nations. And I, I wish I could get into the outer court thing, and, but we're not going there. So uh, you are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe, not part of it. You know, they say the average American Christian gives 2 to 3% of their income uh, to the Lord. So that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Do you know this is the only place in all of Scripture where God is allowed to be put to the test? The, the Bible says, thou shalt not test the Lord your God, right? Except in this. He says, test me in this. He's baiting you. Uh, he says, test me. Now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now Paul said that he was not afraid to share anything of the whole counsel of God. I have shied away. You know, I don't, we don't talk much about money or tithing in this church. And part of it is because I'm not a hyper faith message guy. If you're giving to get back, I think you're missing the point. I, I hope you're giving to love the Lord, to acknowledge that he gave you life in the first place. It's the Lord that gives you the power to make wealth, the Bible says. Uh, in the 10% in the old, uh, is, is a biblical principle that represents the whole. When you're giving your 10%, the reason, you know what, I'm all for people like giving it in the middle of the week, but I really wish you'd get in the habit of writing the first check off your paycheck. Whenever I get a paycheck, my first check is my tithe check because the Lord comes first. And then I give it as part of my worship on Sunday morning. And my wife and I, I'm not bragging, I'm just telling you, we've never lacked for anything. As you can see, I'm certainly not lacking for uh, food. The, we've never lacked for anything. We've had many times, because we've been out on this financial limb and so forth, where we really needed sales to happen this week if we were going to pay the bills and so forth. We've never been late on a bill. We've, I mean, the money for the bill came in the day before many, many, many times. But God has always provided. Sometimes it meant working a second job and so forth. Uh, and I'm sorry I'm going to go over my time, but I just think this is really important for us. I, I think uh, maybe I've robbed us by not, by not teaching on this enough. Um, my wife and I normally give around 20% of our income to the Lord, I'd say, on the average. And we have over the years. And it's because it's, it's about the kingdom. Really, I mean, I, yeah, you all know we live in kind of a house that needs a lot of painting and different things like that. I'd rather invest in eternity. Uh, anyway, test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer. Do you know that God is in control of how often you need new tires and how often your transmission goes out and how who breaks the windows in your house and et cetera, et cetera. And when you rob God, you know what? He, he's not going to rebuke the devourer. And honestly, this we, we think of it that way, which is one right way to think of it. But think of it in this terms. There was no federal income tax until 100 years ago. And before then, there was never a nation in the history of the world who met its welfare needs as well as America did through private churches, businesses, and families. And since, the, you know, since they said the income tax will only be 
That's how they sold it in the first place. Now they always say it'll just be this, and it will only be levied on the very rich. And of course, now if you work at McDonald's, you're considered the very rich. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so the point being, part the, you know what? God intends families, churches to do these things. And part of the devourer is, that, that's why you really need to tithe on your gross income, because it acknowledges that God gets his before the federal government steals theirs. And it, frankly, taxation uh, to, to redistribute and all that kind of stuff, what it does is it makes the poor, poor, more poor, it, when the church could, could do it. All right, uh, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord. Test the Lord in this. I, I want to say this. The reason I, I went over is, is I honestly believe this very strongly. This is, as you know, this is the fourth church that my wife and I have planted. Um, I think that some of the reasons we've struggled more and different things is I'm older and less energetic. There's lots of reasons. The culture is much more pagan than it was back in the, from 1979 to 1991 when we, were, when we were planning churches. There's a lot of, and we chose to be in the inner city and, and uh, do a lot of things that aren't necessarily the popular model. But I, I believe this, and, I, and I'll stop with this, even though it's late, and we'll, we'll start the second meeting a little late. I apologize. So this is the longest I've ever gone on Sunday school. Because I believe this. I believe that one of the, probably the number one factor, certainly one of the biggest factors, but I think possibly the, the number one factor of why this church has struggled is because we have always had four or five or six people who have a pattern of not tithing. And I've never had that before. You know, I, I, because we preach a radical gospel and that you have to make Jesus as Lord, if, you know, if you're not working, well, then you don't have a tithe. But if you're, you know, or, uh, but if you have income, you need to honor God in your local church with it first. And we've had a pattern where different people have had uh, kind of things have been tight for them and so forth, and they've stopped tithing. Um, and it's kind of funny that you can almost see uh, see it in terms of, you know, I, I pastor a lot of you individually, and we, we have a lot of relationships and so forth. You can even see it in, in the blessings of God uh, on people's lives. It translates into other areas. And I, again, I'm not a faith message kind of guy, but I, I will say this, don't rob God in tithes and offering and understand the process God has. Every word of the Lord is tested as silver refined seven times. When you set out to tithe, you will go through a time where it's going to be very tempting not to tithe. If you set out to be sexually pure, you're going to go through some testing in that. When the word of the Lord comes to you, it's going to have some testing. That's how the, the, the dross gets out and the purity comes in. And that's how God refines your motives for why you're doing it and so forth. But don't, when things are tight, don't, don't stop giving to the Lord. Give your way through it. Uh, I, I watch people who just kind of keep going through the mountain and around the mountain and whatever, and just seem to can't get past certain points in their, in their spiritual walk. And I honestly believe it has a lot to do 
with not being consistent in that area. Be con that should be just a done deal. If you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you honor God with the first of all the increase he gives you. The first thing you do is honor back to God that he gave you life and that he gave you new life in Christ and that he gave you the ability to work, which is so much a part of our identity.